0: Well, again, it's great to be with you this morning, and as always, it's a privilege and a joy to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. We're continuing our series in the book of Jonah this morning, Uh, so if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to Jonah chapter 3? If you've not been here, I'd like to catch you up a little bit on what's happened throughout Jonah. Jonah begins, Jonah's a prophet, he begins with the Word of the Lord coming to him, that he's to go to this city, Nineveh, and proclaim God's word to them. And Jonah turns, and instead of obeying God, he goes in the opposite direction. He finds himself eventually on a ship in the midst of a storm, and ends up being tossed overboard from the ship. A great fish that the Lord has appointed swallows him up, and in the belly of the fish, he finally calls out To the Lord. He prays to him as Brandon preached last week. And the fish vomits him back onto the dry land. This is where we are this morning. This is where Brandon left us last week. And so now we come to Jonah chapter 3 to see what will become of the prophet Jonah. This is Jonah chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. And he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. So we look at Jonah chapter 3. We're going to follow the flow of this passage of the text. And we're going to see three things. And then we're going to ask a final question. First, we're going to see this second time that the Lord brings a task to Jonah in verses 1 through 4. And it's here that we'll see Jonah's response and then the message that he proclaims. Then we're going to see what Nineveh's response is to God's message. And then finally, we're going to see what God's response is to Nineveh's repentance. After that, we're going to ask a question. What do we make Of all this? What do we do with what we have read? So, after the hubbub of Jonah running from God, being tossed into the sea, being swallowed by a fish, and then finally vomited out, we get to chapter three. And we get a repeat of exactly, almost word for word, what we read in chapter one. This time we're told that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. A second time. This is just a little reminder for us of what has happened thus far, that God has had to do this again. God says to Jonah, all right, now that you've had your little escapade, let's try this one more time. And already we have to stop and we have to acknowledge that this is God's mercy. Jonah's job is to be a prophet. His job is to proclaim the word that the Lord tells him. A prophet always obeys and says what God tells him to say. Jonah has refused to do that. At the very least, Jonah should have been fired. If you remember back with King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel, who's both a priest and a prophet, has told Saul to wait until he arrives at the battlefield to make a sacrifice. Saul grows impatient and goes ahead and makes the sacrifice before Samuel arrives. In chapter 15, when they finally come head to head, this is what Samuel says to Saul. He says, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king over his people. Rejection of God's word means that God is able to reject you from the job that he has given you. God has every right to reject Jonah as his prophet. He could have sought after another man to do this job, but he didn't. He allows Jonah to continue being his mouthpiece. He allows him another chance to proclaim his word to the Ninevites. This is a double mercy for Jonah. God has been merciful in saving his life, in bringing him up from the pit, and now he is merciful again in restoring him to his office and allowing him another shot at proclaiming his word. And Jonah gets it right this time. Verse three says what we should have read in verse three of chapter one. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah obeys. This phrase that comes after, according to the word of the Lord, is meant to highlight how perfect and exact Jonah's obedience is. In complete contrast from the first time, his obedience is exactly what God said for him to do. And then we get this little aside it says in verse 3, Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. This is a bit confusing, and it's a bit confusing, especially with, the, uh, with regarding the size of Nineveh. We're not going to spend the four or five minutes that it would take to unpack this, but I want you to know that this, like many other passages, is a place that people will often take something that is seemingly confusing and say, ah, that's a contradiction. The Bible is not historically accurate. And I want you to know that thoughtful people have given a lot of thought to this answer. One of the reasons that Brandon and I study week in and week out is so that we are able to answer those questions. So please, when you have those questions, don't assume that the only person who has ever thought through them is the one who is saying, aha, the Bible's inaccurate. Come, ask your questions. God's word is worth the questions that we have for it. But we often don't bring those up in the sermon because we think that God's word ought to be proclaimed more than it ought to be defended in preaching. So we're not going to spend the time that it would take to unpack that. Instead, We're going to look at what we think the point of the passage is. And it's the message that Jonah has for Nineveh. This is what he proclaims to them in verse 4. He finally gets there. He comes a day's journey into Nineveh. And he says this. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. The message that God has given Jonah is a message of judgment. It's a message of wrath. If you remember back to our first sermon, the Ninevites are awful. Their evil has come up before God. These are a people who have been brutal in war, in overcoming people, and oppressing people. They have lopped off the limbs of their enemies in shame and fear. Their evil is finally coming to them, Jonah says. This word, overthrown, is the same word that is used in Genesis 19 that God threatens to Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember back in Genesis 19, God rains down fire and sulfur on that city. This is what is being threatened to the Ninevites. This is not a popular message, but it is one that we need to hear and remember. Proverbs 11.21 says, Be assured an evil person will not go unpunished. In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 11, it says, The Lord says this, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. This is a terror for us in our sin. But we need to know that it is also a comfort to us when we are sinned against. When others hurt you and take from you and do evil things to you, God sees it. Those evils do not slip past him. He doesn't ignore them. He promises that he will judge those people. He will repay that evil. He will punish the evildoer. Our God is a God of justice. He will repay the evil that has been done. It's possible that we don't think much about this because we are a people that are not very familiar with suffering as people have been in the past or in different parts of the world. Most of us have not been invaded By another nation. We've not been overtly persecuted for our Christian faith. But we have suffered. There are people in this room who have been abused. Who have been lied to. Who have had evil and horrible things done to you. You need to hear that God will not let those sins go unpunished. This is actually the only basis that God gives for us not avenging ourselves. Do you remember what he says in Romans 12? He doesn't just say, get over it, or that's not that big of a deal, stop worrying about that. No. He says in Romans 12, 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The Lord has seen the sins of Nineveh. He has seen every single one of their evil actions, and He is repaying them for their sins. He is promising punishment. On them for what they have done. Vengeance belongs to him. This is the message that the prophet Jonah finally delivers to this evil city of Nineveh. So, how do they respond to this message of judgment? Read with me verses five through eight. And the people of Nineveh believed God. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. The Ninevites repent. The final line we just read includes the word that is often used for repentance. It's that word turn. Let everyone turn from his evil way. Let everyone, this king says, repent. They hear the word of the Lord from Jonah his message of judgment, and they believe God. They take him seriously. First, we read that the people who hear Jonah initially repent from the greatest of them to the least. And then in verse 6, we see that the king hears the word, and he himself repents, and then makes a declaration that goes out to everyone in the city that everyone ought to Repent. This is a comprehensive repentance. It's not just a few people in a closed-off section who repent. The end of verse 5 says, "...from the greatest of them to the least." The king in his proclamation, whether he is exaggerating or he really means it, even includes animals in this repentance. Not just you, but also your cattle ought to be covered with sackcloth and repent. Repent. This is comprehensive. No one is exempt. All of Nineveh must repent. We also see that this repentance is characterized by humility. That's what fasting and sackcloth and ashes are all about. When these are together, they are a sign of mourning in ancient times. Sometimes for death or tragedy, but also over their own sin. The king gives the greatest picture of this humility. He rises up from his throne. He takes off his royal robe. These are signs of his honor and dignity and importance. He removes those things, and instead he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits down on the ground in ashes. This is a picture of humility. He is taking external measures to show the internal humility that he has. But the text is clear that these aren't just empty rites. They aren't empty rituals. The king demands changed lives. Signs of repentance are worthless if we continue in sin. Somehow this king knows what Israel has been told time and time and time again. Listen to what God says to Israel in Amos chapter 5. I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs." To the melody of your harps I will not listen, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The point of that is not that God doesn't care about ritual. It's not that he doesn't care about external actions that show our devotion and humility and repentance. In fact, he commands those things. The point is that they are worthless if they are not accompanied by a changed life. If they are not accompanied by righteousness, by turning from our sin and turning to God, those things matter none. And so the king of Nineveh knows this and demands it of his people. He doesn't just demand outward signs of prayer and humility, but he says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. This is the repentance of Nineveh. It's top to bottom. It's accompanied by humility and crying out to God for mercy. And it's a promise of changed lives, turning from their violent ways to God. Now, we don't know what comes of this repentance of Nineveh. We would all like to know, and everyone that I read this week would love to know what becomes of this repentance of Nineveh. Do they actually forsake their gods and turn to Yahweh? Do we see them repenting as a nation? We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. We do know that probably about a generation later, Assyria, of which Nineveh is a part, overtakes the people of God brutally. They come to them and they take them out of their land in 722 BC. So we don't know what comes of this, but we know what comes in the long run. God does eventually, especially in the prophet Nahum, he does promise that he will now come to them in judgment for what they have done. But instead of focusing on their repentance, the text turns... And focuses on God's response. It makes the pinnacle, the crescendo of the text, how God responds to their repentance. Let's see what God does. Let's begin reading in verse 9 with the final words of the king of Nineveh. He says, Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. God's response was that he did not pour out his judgment on Nineveh. He saw their repentance, and he relented from the judgment he said he would give to them. As Nineveh turns from their evil way, so God turns from what he said he would do. The word that we use for this is mercy. God has not given Nineveh what they deserve. As we mentioned earlier, Nineveh fully deserved this judgment. They fully deserved everything that was coming their way. But instead of punishment, God has mercy on them. As Jonah will memorably say in the next chapter, this is who God is. It is his character. God is so defined by his mercy and his grace that he is the God who shows mercy. He is merciful and gracious. In Exodus chapter 34, when Moses wants to see the glory of the Lord, this is what the Lord declares to him when he passes him by. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, when you and I hear that, Our attention immediately goes to, oh my goodness, he is still paying them for their sin. He is still visiting the iniquity on the third and fourth generation. But what we ought to be shocked by is the way that God talks about his mercy. His justice goes to the third and fourth generation, but his mercy goes to the thousands or the thousandth generation. He is... Slow to anger. He will by no means clear the guilty, but he is slow in his anger. However, he is quick in his mercy. He is abounding, the text says, or overflowing in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is a mystery that is difficult to put words to. But in the reading of the scriptures, we have to say that God is certainly just, but that he is overflowing in his mercy. When you hear these passages about God's character, and you see stories of how he deals with Nineveh, and Israel, and Zacchaeus, and the Apostle Paul, and the thief on the cross, you almost get the sense that God is, humanly speaking, on the edge of his seat, waiting to pour out his mercy on sinners. When he comes in contact with sinners, he is, in a sense, eager to be merciful to them. He's looking for opportunity to spill out his overflowing mercy on sinners. God is, again, to speak in our terms, God is close fisted and tight with his justice. He is slow to dole it out, he says. But he is liberal and open-handed With his mercy, he gives it away in abundance. Is this how we think about God? What would change about the posture we take in talking to unbelievers if we had this view of God in our minds? We often think of how daunting it is to convince people to turn away from their sin and turn to God. This is difficult. We know it is. But how would we think about that conversation if we knew that God was eager to pour out his mercy on those people? If we pictured God on the edge of his seat, waiting to forgive them of their sins and be merciful for them, looking for opportunity to forgive them. This doesn't just have application in evangelism, also has application in worship. We praise God that he is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We praise him for his creation of the world and his providential care over his creation. But what takes up most of our time in worship? It's his mercy It's his grace, his forgiveness, his steadfast love for us that in the face of our sin, again and again and again, God pours out his mercy on us. I love that answer to the Heidelberg Catechism. That as we have faith, as we acknowledge that God is merciful and he forgives sin, we don't just acknowledge that for others. But I, too, have had my sins forgiven have been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. Is that what fills your mind as you come into worship? As you worship not just in here, but in the quiet of your home or your car or your office? Is that what characterizes our view of God? This is the God who we worship and love and follow. He is merciful and gracious eager to forgive ill-deserving sinners. So now we have a question. What are we to make of all this? We've seen that God has given his mercy to the Ninevites, that he identifies himself as merciful and gracious. What are we supposed to do? Does that make sense? Remember, back at the beginning, we talked about God's justice, He will not let sins go unpunished. While Nineveh's repentance is great, it doesn't even come close to making up for their sin. They've had a day of humility and promising that they would change their lives in the face of years of violence and brutality. These two things do not even out. Is God unjust? Has He let His mercy overcome his justice. This is one of those places that is hidden in the Old Testament, but the mystery has been revealed to us in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul has just finished saying that everyone has sinned. No one is righteous according to the law. No one can stand right before God. Then he shows How the justice of God and the mercy of God have finally come together. This is Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been made evident apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God And the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What this means is that God passed over former sins. The sins of those who came before Christ. Who looked to God in faith. But he didn't forget them. Instead, he stored them up. He stored up the punishment that those sins deserved. And he poured them out on his own son. On Jesus. That's what it means that he was a propitiation. What we read in Proverbs 11 and Isaiah 13 are true. God will punish every single sin that has ever been committed in rebellion against him. For those who do not trust in Jesus, this punishment for their sins will ultimately come on them. They will be punished for eternity in hell. But for those who do trust in Jesus, for those who have put their faith in Him, that punishment for all their sins, all my sins, has been poured out on Jesus fully and finally. This is how God can be merciful and gracious to us, but not offer us cheap forgiveness. This is how He can say that He will not leave the guilty unpunished and yet. Offer forgiveness. Because instead of overthrowing Nineveh, he overthrew his own son. Instead of punishing us, he punished himself. He punished Jesus. So as we think about Jonah and Nineveh and God's mercy at their repentance, we remember God's mercy at our repentance, at our fickle and ill-deserving repentance. And we're reminded that our faith and repentance, our humility, and even our sorrow over sin did not appease God's wrath. No, our faith joined us to Jesus. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation, only mercy. Would you all pray with me? Father, we are humbled. We're humbled because we know that we deserve your punishment. We've lived in rebellion against you, and even, even after we've been saved, we still live as though we haven't been. So we praise you, and we thank you for your great mercy. Thank you for Jesus. May we live ever more adoring and loving him. It's in his great and worthy name that we pray. Amen.